to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. You will notice if you just turn over to the next chapter, chapter 48, how uh, Isaiah refers back to the Exodus when he is speaking about the deliverance of his people from Babylon. Verse 20 of chapter 48. Leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians, announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it, send it out to the ends of the earth, say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Now here's the parallel with the first exodus. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. So he is saying here again, just as God faithfully provided for his people in the first exodus, he is going to do so in the second. But of course, as I said a moment ago, just as God is delivering his people from Babylon, so he is going to inflict judgment on this godless, unrighteous, and merciless nation of Babylon. You see, there must have been a problem to the people of Judah when the Babylonians came in such vast numbers upon them. And in the, towards the end of the, the year 586, 588 and 587 BC, they came down upon Jerusalem, pillaged the city, carried off the cream to Babylon and murdered multitudes of them. And it must have been a great problem to the people of Judah. How is it that God could possibly have allowed this pagan nation such triumph over his own people? And how is it that they could have behaved so unrighteously and sinfully and appeared to get off scot-free? Well, of course, they had not done so. God was waiting his own time to bring his judgment upon this people. What actually happened was not so much that they gained a victory, but in chapter 47, halfway through verse 6, I gave them into your hand, and then you showed them no mercy. Now what God is doing is chastising his people. He says in chapter 47, verse 6 at the beginning, I was angry with my people. You need to realize that that is an element in the way God deals with his people. Have you ever noticed this in scripture? God is not just angry with the ungodly and the pagan nation. God is frequently said to be displeased with his own people and he brings them under his chastening hand. And that is the reason that the people of Judah were driven into Babylon. But what chapter 47 is really telling us is that sin will never ultimately triumph. That's the great message that we need to grasp. Isaiah brings from God in chapter 47 a notice of judgment upon Babylon. Verse 4 of chapter 47, Our Redeemer, 
the Lord Almighty is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. And God is now going to display how his holiness and righteousness is preserved even in the midst of the situation of the people of God delivered into the hands of the Babylonians. Now Babylon is addressed at the beginning of chapter 47 in the language of a female. It's a way that frequently still in our literature we would address uh, a country or sometimes a city when we talk in the song that people sing about Britannia we are using a female form and uh, when you speak often about cities for example Greta and I were in uh, Venice after a conference I was at a year or so ago and uh, I was interested to see in the brochure in the hotel that Venice was called the Queen of the Adriatic the slightly smelly Queen but uh, it was the Queen of the Adriatic and uh, here Babylon is addressed in that form do you notice as a daughter and as a queen go down sit in the dust virgin daughter of Babylon uh, you get the same reference in verse 5 coupled with this reference to a queen sit in silence go into darkness daughter of the Babylonians no more will you be called the queen of kingdoms now Babylon in scripture from the book of Genesis chapter 11 right through to the book of Revelation chapter 18 is the symbol of godless humanity organizing itself in proud rebellion against the Lord and here Babylon the nation is again the picture of godless humanity organizing itself without God and against him you'll notice the characteristics of this proud godlessness which replaced God by boasted human strength in verse 7 they arrogated to themselves God's eternity notice you said I will continue forever the eternal queen in verse 8 they arrogated to themselves God's uniqueness now then listen you wanton creature lounging in your security and saying to yourself I am and there is none beside me and again in verse 10 you have trusted in your wickedness and have said no one sees me your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself I am and there is none beside me now that is God's constant way of referring to himself I am the Lord and there is none beside me I often think I know that it's uh, a characteristic joke of the Scots that we toast ourselves here's tears was like us you know 
but I tend to think that there is a spirit that not only is here in the Babylonians, I am and there is none beside me. There is an arrogant pride that invades the human heart when there is something wrong with our relationship with God which produces this kind of spirit. And you discover it, as you might expect, above all places in the Babylonian system of life. Very interesting that in the book of Revelation, uh, clearly John recognizes in the Roman Empire and in all its proud self-boasting the picture of Babylon and the Roman Empire is described as Babylon frequently in Revelation. Well now, Babylon is not only a place, Babylon is a spirit. And the really serious thing about what happened to the people of God when they were in exile in Babylon is that Babylon got into many of them. It was not just that they were sent into Babylon. It was that Babylon as a spirit got into many of God's people. And here, God exposes what the Spirit is. Now, he addresses Babylon immediately at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1 with great force and abruptness. It's really the language that you would use to a dog. Do you notice? Get down, we say. Those of you who have dogs will know how you will say that to a dog. Get down, we say. Now, God says to Babylon, get down, sit, he say. It's, it's dog language, this. Sit in the dust, virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne. Now, do you see how God is going to make an end of all this boasted pomp and self-importance that was in Babylon? He says, get down, sit in the dust. Sit on the ground without a throne, daughter of the Babylonians. No more will you be called tender or delicate. God is going to expose the godless crudity of this particular way of life that is represented in Babylon. Now that's the very sharp introduction to what is to befall Babylon when God comes in judgment upon them. And what actually happens is that God uses yet another pagan nation and its leader Cyrus of Persia to chastise the Babylonians as God brings judgment upon them just as he had used the Babylonians to chastise his own people. So you get a great display of God's sovereign righteousness here. Now, the picture is really the disgrace of Babylon from being the high-born daughter 
of royalty, as it were, to being the slave sitting in the dust, instead of the dignity and glory which once belonged to her. Verses 2 and 1 to 3 describe the shame and exposure which will belong to her under the judging hand of God. Sit on the ground without a throne, daughter of the Babylonians. Now this whole chapter is an account really of how God brings about the payment of sin's wages to a nation like Babylon. And it's a very solemn chapter in many ways. In so many ways, it's a, a very a chapter full of a great spirit of darkness. But it gives way towards the end to something quite different. But there is something profoundly solemn, and we dare not try to get away from the solemnity of the truth that God always pays out the wages of sin. Of course, he's going to lead us in these coming chapters from 49 onwards to see how in the mystery of his grace he paid out the wages of sin into the person of his only son, the servant of Jehovah, who bore our iniquity and carried our sorrows. But there is no question whatsoever that here God's righteousness is being established. He does not declare himself to be the Holy One of Israel for nothing. And Babylon's fate is an example of how God takes all the proud inflation and pretensions of sin and brings them down into the dust. So in the very first place, it is the humiliation of godless pride that Isaiah is proclaiming in verses 1 to 3 at the beginning. Take millstones, verse 2, and grind flour. Take off your veil, lift up your skirts, bare your legs, wade through the streams, you see, this is this glorious queen who boasted of her majesty and glory and dignity and power. And now she is humiliated utterly by the God who brings down the high things that exalt themselves against him. And that's what this picture is of. Secondly, it is a picture of a holy God taking vengeance against evil. Now, if that seems offensive to you, let me point you to the second half of verse 3. I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. Now, one of the things that these next six verses from verse 3b onwards tell us 
is that God's vengeance is awesome and sure and inescapable. And you need to grasp this if we are to grasp a true picture of the God of the Bible. The reason that we are not to indulge in vengeance. Remember in Romans 12, 19, Paul tells us that God has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And we are not, therefore, to take vengeance on other people. It is not our business to repay people for what they have done. That we leave absolutely to God. And the reason we may leave it with God is that God is a God of vengeance. He is a God whose righteousness is such that no one flouts his law with impunity. Now notice how he clarifies that in verse 3. I will take vengeance, he says at the end of the verse. I will spare no one. Now if you look on to verse 6. I was angry with my people and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hands and you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged you laid a very heavy yoke. Now that's one of the marks, you see, of a cruel, godless society. And here were the Babylonians with absolutely no mercy, even for the aged. And God says, I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. You showed no mercy. I will show no mercy. The very things they prided themselves would never happen, God says, will. Now notice how he works this out, verse 8. Now then, listen, you wanton creatures lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am, and there is none beside me. Now, this is the characteristic of the godless nation of Babylon that they trusted in their own resources, they looked to the future with confidence, they said the things that are happening around us will never happen to us, they trusted in a false security. Now what they were really saying was that they would never be invaded. You notice what it says about I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. This is really a reference most scholars think to a defeat in battle because what happens in a war when multitudes of the male members of society are killed is that there are multitudes of widows and there is probably a reference to something like that here I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children but both of these will overtake you in a moment on a single day loss of children and widowhood they will come upon you in full measure so there is the taking of vengeance by God 
And of course, that was precisely what had happened when the Babylonians invaded Judah. Uh, it seems that four-fifths, most of the, the history that testifies to that time, seems to make it clear that four-fifths of Judah's manhood was destroyed then. It was not that they came and took them to Babylon, you see. They destroyed the great majority of the manhood of Judah and took the remainder, the cream, off to Babylon captive. Now God says, I will make you widows. Now that's a fearsome thing. But it is simply an expression of God's righteous judgment. And it is recorded for us here, lest we have a tendency to take God lightly in his word and promise and judgment. The very important thing for us, you know, not to divide between God's promises and his threats. We are very happy to say, God never forgets to keep his promises. Blessed be his name. Every promise God keeps, his children may claim and rest upon. And why is that? It is because God never utters an idle word. He never promises as we do. We promise people things and then we are unable to keep our promises. But God is not like that. But in precisely the same sense, when God utters a threat, he never utters an idle word. He means exactly what he says. And we need to grasp that if God is the Holy One of Israel, it means that his threats as well as his promises are true altogether. So it is the taking of vengeance by a holy God. But you'll notice in the third place, it is not only the humiliation of godless pride, the taking of vengeance by a holy God, it is the exposure of secret sin that is going to take place in Babylon. Look, for example, at verse 10. You have trusted in your wickedness and have said, No one sees me. Now, this too is, of course, very solemn. What it means is these people not only are living in rebellion against God, defying him, breaking his law, sinning against him, but they are trusting in their own wicked wisdom to be able to cover up their sin. And that bit of the beginning, the first three verses about the exposure of the daughter of Babylon, that coupled with verse 10 is really a testimony to the fact that God exposes the secret. Do you remember how Jesus spoke about this? The things that we had spoken in secret would be shouted from the rooftops. That's an appalling thought, isn't it? The exposure of secret sin. 
Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none beside me. Because with all the cleverness of man in concealing his sin, he is not clever enough to avoid the exposure of God. That's what Isaiah is saying. And the fourth mark of what God is doing here in Babylon is the discrediting of false religion, the humiliation of godless pride, the taking of vengeance by a holy God, the exposure of secret sin, and the discrediting of false religion. Do you notice how from verse 9 onwards we get a whole series of seven references to various forms of magic and sorcery and astrology and so on. Notice what he says. Um, they will come upon you, that is, widowhood and childlessness. They will come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. Verse 11, disaster will come upon you and you will not know how to conjure it away. Verse 12, keep on then with your magic spells and your many sorceries. Perhaps you will succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. You know that the whole world of uh, the sorcerer and the spell and the astrologer is perhaps, perhaps, it's the world of chance. And that's bound up in the language. Perhaps you will succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. All the counsel, verse 13, you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. Now, there is no doubt whatsoever that Babylon was the great home of every form of sorcery and black magic and astrology and every form of the arts of those who engaged in spells and so on. If you just turn over to Ezekiel chapter 21, for example, you'll see um, how the king of Babylon uh, engaged in this in the midst of battle. Verse 21, for the king of Babylon... That's Ezekiel 21, 21. The king of Babylon will stop at the fork in the road at the junction of the two roads to seek an omen. He will cast lots with arrows. He will consult his idols. He will examine the liver. Into his right hand will come the lot for Jerusalem where he is to set up battering rams to give the command to slaughter, to sound the battle cry, and so on. Verse 23, it will seem like a false omen to those who have sworn allegiance to him and God is going to confuse them in that very area now it's a very significant thing I think that this world of sorcerer spells conjuring incantations astrology and stargazers uh, is a world that is part of this godless 
God-defying society. Notice uh, how God pours scorn upon them because they are a grand delusion. Now, we sometimes think that they're a bit of a joke, you know. Uh, the stargazer in the daily paper. But actually in Scripture, they're not a joke for this reason. They are not a joke because they're a substitute for trusting God. That's why they're not a joke. They are an alternative religion. And the reason that multitudes of people rush to the horoscope and in the morning on the paper is that they have no other hope of confidence outside of themselves than that. And this is a substitute for, for trusting God. And the ludicrousness of doing it is that they cannot save. Verse 13, he taunts them at the end, let them save you from what is coming upon you. Verse 14, surely they're like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. Here are no coals to warm anyone. Here is no fire to sit by. That is all they can do for you. Those you have labored with and trafficked with since childhood, each of them goes on in his error. There is not one that can save you. And you see twice over, uh, for example, in verses 12 and 15, the utter tragedy that they had brought their children up to traffic in that kind of thing is highlighted. This is how they had taught their children. Now, what a transformation there is when you come to see Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Do you remember? And from the very earliest days in that pagan nation, they sensed that there was something wrong with the whole shape of life in that place. And they stood for the things of God and for his glory and for his wisdom and the knowledge of God. And calling upon him was the very essence of their life. Why? Because that's how they'd been brought up since childhood. My dear friends, it is a most glorious thing when you see children who from their earliest days have been brought up to see the greatness of God as their Redeemer, as the only one in whom they can place their confidence. But he says, you've trafficked in that since childhood. Now these uh, substitutes for trust in God are both insulting to God and impermanent in themselves. They are burned up in the flame. They are incapable of saving anyone from anything. And God warns Babylon against the sheer stupidity that they stand for. And it is the folly 
failing to trust the Lord. Now behind all that solemn, perhaps you might think, almost morose picture of God's judgment upon Babylon, there lies another note that is going to come clearer and clearer in the rest of Isaiah, and that is the triumph, the absolute final triumph of God over all his enemies. Here is this great power of Babylon, you see. Now you can imagine that the people of Israel for some time may well have thought, here is a power that even God does not appear to be able to stand against. They have overwhelmed us. They have carried us off into their own land. They are increasingly pressing us with their power and authority and sovereignty. But now God is going to Speak to them the language of a master with his dog. Get down. Sit in the dust, he says. Now what's the lesson of that? Let me tell you what the lesson of that is. The lesson of that is that it is important for us to be more God-conscious than Satan-conscious in all our thinking about the powers of evil. There are two great errors people make in relation to Satan and the powers of darkness. One is to trivialize him and ignore him. And the other is to be obsessed by him so that you scarcely see the greatness and the victory and the glory of God. Well, Babylon is long since in ruins, but the way of life that it represents is still real. And you and I need to recognize that the great warning of Babylon is that there is only one God. There is only one Savior. And he is the God who will keep his word and make an end of every enemy. And therefore, we need to say in the words that we sang at the beginning, pride of man and earthly glory, sword and crown betray his trust. What with care and toil he buildeth, tower and temple fall to dust. But God's power, hour by hour, is my temple and my tower. Let us pray together. Our blessed Lord, we thank you that you are the sovereign Lord over heaven and earth and men and nations. We thank you that you are the utterly righteous, utterly reliable and faithful Savior. And we praise you above all this evening for our Lord Jesus Christ, who not only bore all the weight of your judgment upon sin, but triumphed over all the powers of darkness. 
fix our eyes on him, we pray, and grant that our trust in him may grow day by day for the glory of your name. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.